Hi, everybody. This is Gary Sandy, and thank you very much for listening to the WKRP cast. So just sit right down, relax, open your ears real wide, and say... Weather today in the greater Cincinnati area... Are you awake? Whoa! Are you awake now? But the senator, while insisting he was not intoxicated, could not explain his nudity. Say what? Dear God, she's going to kill us all. Welcome to the WKRP cast. My name is Alan Stair. And I'm Donna Stair. This is the fourth and final season of our week-by-week, episode-by-episode rewatch. Join us for this final season as we're getting into the music, the trivia, and the fun of WKRP. So, fellow babies, stay tuned and stay cool. It's time for the WKRP cast. I'm at WKRP in Cincinnati. Welcome back to another WKRP cast. Today we're getting philanthropic. What is our episode, Donna? We are ready to discuss Jennifer and Johnny's charity. The air date was January 13th, 1982. Written by Blake Hunter. Story editor, well, this would normally be Lisa Levin, but instead she's listed as story consultant. It's a Writers Guild thing. Directed by Will McKenzie. A fire at the Vine Street Mission destroys the kitchen. Johnny starts a donation fund to rebuild. Jennifer approaches her wealthy friends to contribute. She throws a fundraising party at her apartment. All goes well until the homeless show up to share their thoughts on what should be done. If you're watching along with us on the Shout Factory disc, the air order mess continues. We're still working our way through a group of -of out-of-order episodes. If you've been keeping up with the podcast, you know Michael Hernandez, the accountant of rock, has identified actual air dates for fourth-season episodes. He's been scanning local TV listings to get the real story. This one, Jennifer and Johnny's charity, got moved up according to the official list. It was originally scheduled to go February 3rd. It was moved up ahead of both pills and changes. The programming changes we're seeing here in the early spring of 1982 feel like either desperation or possibly sabotage. WKRP is underperforming. Certain factions of the CBS brass don't like Hugh Wilson or the show. There are those who think the show is too hip. It makes too many political and social statements. This group would really like to see it die quietly. CBS is the Tiffany Network, long considered to be the most conservative of the big three. A show like WKRP was oftentimes at odds with their corporate political views. Others still saw WKRP as a potential boon for the network because it takes risks. This group wanted it to succeed. The choice to move Jennifer and Johnny's charity could have come from either side. Although it's an ensemble cast, both Lonnie Anderson and Howard Hessman were considered breakout stars. On the We Wanted to Succeed side, moving an episode where both of the breakout character names are in the title feels like a good move. By making sure both the names Jennifer and Johnny appeared in the TV Guide listing, it seemed like somebody was making a move to maybe win the time slot. Then again, maybe those who wanted it to die were behind this move. This episode was originally scheduled for February, a sweeps month. Wouldn't you want an episode featuring your two hottest stars to lead off sweeps month? Nope. They pulled it from sweeps and tossed it here in the middle of January. 
This is also the first week at a new time slot. WKRP no longer has a primetime lead-in. The Mighty KRP is now the first show of the night at 8 p.m. Eastern. This episode probably really was a strong one. It managed to tie last week's ranking, finishing number 47 again this week. Only this time, they did it without a lead-in. The impact of the new time slot becomes more obvious next week. Next week's episode, Pills, will drop to number 55 for the week. It gets hammered by both real people and greatest American hero. Those are your programming notes. Now let's get into the episode. We open up in the studio, which means it's time for a studio poster watch. We've got a couple of new things to check out. On the studio door is a poster for the German electronic techno band Kraftwerk. It's promoting their eighth studio album, Computer World. Released in May of 1981, Computer World predicted a future where computer technology was part of everyday life. They hit on themes like home computers, digital communication, and rampant digital surveillance. And remember, this was back in 1981. These guys were psychic. The first single was Pocket Calculator, and it actually includes a calculator solo. By pressing down the special key, it plays a little melody. The flip side was a track entitled Denkatu. What's Denkatu? Well, it's the Japanese version of Pocket Calculator. The cut did not chart, but it oftentimes appeared in Kraftwerk's live sets. They would perform it in either English, German, or Japanese, depending on the crowd. Over the Cincinnati map is a promo poster for the eighth studio album from English singer Marianne Faithful called Dangerous Acquaintances. Released in March of 1981, it was the much-anticipated follow-up to her 1979 release, Broken English. This one was a huge disappointment. Faithful described the recording sessions as a slog, long and arduous. There were two singles, Intrigue and Sweetheart. Intrigue surrounding me Intrigue surrounding you I was only looking for a bit of harmony grace I swear I only meant it in good faith Neither would chart. The album peaked at number 104 on the U.S. Billboard album chart. This album was a hit in Sweden, peaking at number four on the Swedish album chart. Poster on the door above Kraftwerk is a promo for Del Shannon's 1981 album, Drop Down and Get Me. This was the 11th studio album for the American singer-songwriter, whose real name is Charles Whedon Westover. Drop Down and Get Me was released in December of 1981. Shannon was 47 at the time. This was considered a comeback for him. It was produced by Tom Petty, who counts Shannon as an early influence and a musical hero. Shannon's first single, Runaway, was a phenomenal number one hit in 1961. He hadn't had anything on the charts since 1966. This one would yield a minor hit with the pop standard, Sea of Love. Come with me, my love, to the sea, the sea of love. I want 
Penny's band, The Heartbreakers, were also providing backup on the album. Sea of Love would peak at number 33 on the Hot 100 in December of 1981. The comeback didn't materialize. Sea would be Shannon's last top 40 entry. He died in 1990 at the age of 55. Let's get into the episode. We start in the studio where Les is doing his news report. Johnny's standing in the back of the booth flipping through albums. He's holding a copy of the 1981 Greatest Hits album called Anthology from the Babies. The following bulletin has just been received on the WKRP teletype. Monster lizard ravages East Coast. (laughs) This causes Johnny to look up, puzzled. Les continues excitedly. Mayors in five New England cities have issued emergency requests for federal disaster relief as a result of the giant lizard that descended on the East Coast last night. Johnny looks at Les again. He can tell this isn't right, but he's not sure what's going on. Officials say this lizard, the worst since 78, (laughs) has devastated transportation, disrupted communications, and left many hundreds homeless. Ah, okay, Johnny's got it figured out. And now a special look at this episode's bandage placement for the five-time Buckeye Newshawk Award winner, Les Nesman. This is the Les Nesman Bandage Report. Now, here's Donna Stair with her report about Les Nesman. Left ring finger. This has been a look at the bandage placement for Silver Sow and Copper Cobb award-winning journalist Les Nesman. Well, Johnny has had enough. He walks over to Les. Monster lizard. Les covers the mic and turns to Johnny. The wire service never lies. Johnny leans down and flips a switch on the control board. He gets right in Les's face. Les, the B is out on the printer. It's monster blizzard. Johnny flips the switch back, turning the mic on. Les looks at his yellow tear sheets, confused as to what to do now. Johnny asks him if he's going to go back on the air. Well, I don't know if I should explain this or just go on. Johnny flips the switch on the control board again, turning the mic off. He tells Les to just go. Go on. Les reporting on a giant lizard is a WKRP classic. It's one of those all-time Les Nesman mess-ups, ranking right up there with godless tornadoes and chai-chai. But unfortunately, it's not possible The UPI terminal printers where Les is getting his tear sheets were all dot matrix. They didn't have individual letters that could go out. Now, maybe if somebody forgot to type in a B over at UPI, but every time? Even though it could never happen, the giant lizard report is still one of Les's best. In order to pull off the missing B gag, the writers seem to have taken special care with this one. We're not sure if it was intentional or a happy accident. But from the point where Les says mayors in five until he says hundreds homeless, no other word in the entire report even contains a B. The only missing B is the one throwing Les. Without any other missing Bs to tip him off, how could Les have possibly caught this error? Les puts the lizard tear sheet aside and moves on to the next story. Turning to the local scene. <laughs> Last night in downtown Cincinnati, a fire swept through the Vine Street Mission. 
fortuitously... Les turns to look at Johnny. He's quite proud of himself for using this word. No one was injured in the blaze, but damage to the mission kitchen was extensive. Now, in an exclusive Les Nessman interview recorded on the scene, here is Dr. Johnny Fever, local radio personality, who is on the scene. Les puts a card into the control board and pushes play. As we've mentioned in the past, Les is once again at the mercy of a cart machine mess up. He has a lot of trouble with cart machines. Johnny was on his way out of the studio when the mission fire report started. Hearing the tape playing at the wrong speed, Johnny came back into the studio. Les is frantically trying to get the tape to play correctly. He seems to be making it worse. Johnny turns down the cart volume and grabs the mic. Johnny does the actuality live. Yes, Les, this is Johnny Fever, and uh, I'm here at the mission, and there's uh, flaming activity all around me. Johnny finds a piece of cellophane and crinkles it into the mic for the sound effect of a fire. Johnny talks about his connection to the mission, chicken gumbo night, the loss of federal funds, and how the kitchen is a mess. While still reporting, Johnny looks at Les and pats him on the back. Why don't you start the contributions rolling? How much can we put you down for, Les? That was Johnny Fever. <laughs> now stay tuned for Johnny Fever. <laughs> <laughs> Les flips his switch on the control board. <laughs> Johnny turns the volume down on the tape, starts a record spinning, grabs the mic, and introduces Come Together by the Beatles originally. Johnny's playing Come Together from a Greatest Hits disc. Check the album cover sitting on the console to Johnny's left. Sometimes called The Blue Album, this was the second volume of a Beatles Greatest Hits package. Volume 1, or The Red Album, covered the years 1962 through 1966. This one, The Blue Album, covered 1967 through 1970. Released in 1973, they are, together, considered the definitive Beatles Greatest Hits package. If you're thinking the cut of the Beatles on the Shout Factory disc sounds somehow wrong, you'd be right. Although Johnny played the real thing in January of 1982, what you're hearing on the Shout Factory disc is a cover version. Shout Factory, no surprise, couldn't clear the original Beatles recording, but somehow they did get rights to a non-Beatles performance of the song. This means another artist recut come together. Like any good bar band, they're trying, but talk about an impossible assignment. It's the Beatles with one of their best-known songs. The real Come Together first appeared on the landmark 1969 Beatles album, Abbey Road. It was the first cut on side one. As a single, it was the flip side to Something. Both tracks went to number one, a double-sided number one. It remained on the chart for 16 weeks. Come Together is credited to Lennon-McCartney, but it was written and performed by John Lennon. He borrowed heavily from the 1956 Chuck Berry hit, You Can't Catch Me. Yeah, come on, flat top. He was moving up with me. Even the opening line, Here Come a Flat Top, was lifted almost directly. Slowly 
Rolling Stone ranks Come Together as the ninth best Beatles song of all time. It is also listed at number 202 on the Rolling Stone list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. Since Come Together is a cover, we've got a voice edit for Johnny checking in with the Big D, Dale Kovar, and his set of recreated discs. This is how Johnny introed the song the first night it aired. Here comes John Lennon. He's a rock and roll monster. Since John Lennon was not in any way involved with the Shout Factory cover version, they also had to dub in Johnny's voice. This is what we get on the Shout Factory discs, and it's kind of muddled. He's a rock and roll monster. Johnny seems frustrated at the unprofessionalism of his newsman. He throws his hands in the air and rolls his eyes. Another unique Nessman experience for radio listeners everywhere. Well, thank you, John. Les gives Johnny a smile, completely missing the sarcasm. Johnny looks at Les as he begins walking toward him. My pal. My chum. No. Les heads for the door. Johnny quickly blocks his exit. Come on, Les. Hear me out. Les tells Johnny he's always asking him for money. Johnny corrects him. He's always asking for a loan. This is a contribution. There's a lot of difference. Les tells Johnny he doesn't think so. Look, I know that you handle your money a lot better than anybody else around here. Les agrees with him. Yeah, you probably wade through wads of it in your apartment, huh? Les giggles and Johnny joins in, but suddenly Les stops laughing and glares at Johnny. You're making jokes? Johnny tells Les it's a worthwhile cause and these are good people. This warrants loosen the money belt. Let that cash flow, huh? Les thinks for a bit. Well, is it tax deductible? I don't know. Sure. Well, if you're sure. I'm positive. <laughs> Sticks out his billfold and unzips it. He then gives Johnny a look. Johnny turns his back to give Mr. Nesman some privacy. Les reaches into his billfold and flips through a few bills. He finally holds a single bill out to Johnny. Here, John. Ten bucks. Johnny looks at the money and tells Les he realizes this is a big chunk for him. Sincerely, I really want to thank you, and a lot of other people do too, man. Johnny reaches over and gives Les a big hug. Johnny's patting Les on the back as he struggles and pushes Johnny off him. We see Andy walk by the studio window just as Les is shoving Johnny away from him. Don't ever do that again. Les has a very serious look on his face. Tell you what, you give me 20 bucks, I'll never talk to you again. And we talked about that Andy move, what was going right. on there. I, I don't really understand what was meant I think the joke was Les sees someone seeing him hugging another man and it makes him uncomfortable and that's why he wants to get away from Johnny. But it was weird how Andy kind of bopped into the window and then left the same direction. Right, instead of going on forward really quickly, going on he, by he or, backed back up. It yeah, was kind of weird. It was a strange little, like a jack-in-the-box popping into the window. We had a, a, an Andy in the box just popping yeah, in there. And kind of made a face too. And then popped out. Yeah. And as Johnny continues shaming Les into a donation, we head into our theme. WKRP in Cincinnati. We come back from commercial break in the lobby. Jennifer is at her desk reading a large magazine that says Cincinnati Art Museum on the front. It seems to be showing a painting. Les walks in from the bullpen door and says hello to Jennifer. Jennifer mentioned she heard his newscast this morning. About the lizards. Les looks embarrassed and maybe a little bit upset. Little boo-boo. 
but a very speedy recovery. Oh, Jennifer. Jennifer tells Les to cheer up. Jennifer shows Les a package on her desk that came for him. It's from the Plowing Patriots of Omaha. I think it's that little award you've been waiting for. Les is suddenly five years old again as he rips into the package. It's the Copper Cobb Award. Ooh. That was a good ooh. Les has pulled out a um, very phallic-looking <laughs> yellow and green corn on the Cobb statuette. It's sitting upright on a wooden base with a gold plaque on the front. The whole thing stands maybe five, six inches tall. Les holds the award right in front of Jennifer's face for her to admire. Nice. She recoils slightly. I've got to go show this to Bailey. Oh, dear. Johnny comes into the lobby just as Les is leaving. Johnny, look what I got. Johnny barely gives it a glance. Nice. And you were saying, if it weren't sticking straight up. Right, if it up, were horizontal, laying horizontal. Or, or at an angle. That. Even just at an angle. Well, it would I don't maybe know. Not, I well, think it, <laughs> <laughs> you might remember in the episode Straight from the Heart, Les was supposed to pick this award up in person at a dinner in Omaha. Herb had gotten him tickets on the red eye. Instead of going to Omaha, Les went with Herb to a porn theater and wound up in jail. Why didn't you just mind your own business and go to Omaha? Omaha. Omaha seems like a dream to me now. <laughs> So we checked, but as far as we can tell, there are no plowing patriots of Omaha, and there's no such thing as a Copper Cobb Award. There isn't even a fake Copper Cobb being made for WKRP fans. We've seen (laughs) a few for sale versions of the Silver Sow, but no one has jumped on the Copper Cobb bandwagon. At least not yet. I think those would fly right out the window. Oh, they would, yeah. (laughs) It's the Copper Cobb Award. Ooh. Johnny walks up to Jennifer's desk. He says her name, and she interrupts. Is this about the building fund for the Vine Street mission? Yeah, it is. Of course I'll contribute. Johnny tells Jennifer he was thinking of talking to Carlson about it. Jennifer says, well, he's in a conference with Andy. Johnny asks Jennifer for advice about approaching Carlson. Get it in writing and don't take no for an answer. Johnny picks up a pencil from Jennifer's desk. Looking around, he asks... You got a steno pad? Jennifer looks at him as if he has lost his mind. Johnny! I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) All right, now hold on a minute. Johnny used a term that may have flown right by you. He asked if Jennifer had a, quote, steno pad. This might be ringing a bell with you fellow babies of a certain age. To the rest of you, it's pretty archaic. Steno is the shortened slang term for stenographer. What's a stenographer? Well, a stenographer is any person who can write in shorthand. Okay, you're probably also asking, what's shorthand? Well, shorthand is an abbreviated, symbolic method of writing. It increases the speed and brevity of writing. It's designed primarily for business note-taking. Knowing shorthand used to be a basic skill for a good secretary. Those who specialized in shorthand worked exclusively as stenographers. Shorthand is temporary. It's designed to be immediately translated to longhand and most likely typed out for review or filing. Stenographers took their notes in a special pad called a steno pad. Steno pad pages were six inches by nine inches. Most steno pads had a smooth spiral hinge, so pages could be flipped quickly and quietly. Some were lined, others blank. In the 1970s, as dictaphones and personal recorders became popular, stenographers, like DJs, were eventually replaced by machines. 
And I think I mentioned I took shorthand in high school. I had two years of it. Do you still remember any of it? I remember a few of them, you know, a my, few of the marks. My mom was actually a professional stenographer who knew shorthand. And I remember once as a kid finding one of her steno pads. And it looks like hieroglyphics, doesn't I it? I thought she was an alien. <laughs> I thought, what is this that, you know, these marks in there? And it was just page after page after page right. of these marks. And I used it in my other classes taking notes. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, cool. Came in handy. I have a message pad. <laughs> well, Jennifer pushes the message pad over for Johnny to use. She begins looking through her Rolodex. And while while you're working on him, I'll see if I can't come up with a few donations on my own. Yes, Johnny, how much money is needed? Well, they said about 40000 to rebuild, you know, but anything's appreciated. Duck soup. <laughs> Jennifer doesn't seem to be concerned with that number at all. She's <laughs> flipping through her Rolodex as Johnny heads for Carlson's office. And we have talked about the term duck soup, but we're not quite sure which episode it was in. So go back, listen to all the old podcasts and find <laughs> the term duck soup. We, we define it. Duck soup. We have a cut to continuity inside Carlson's office. Johnny opens the door and walks in. Andy is sitting on the back of the couch because Andy still hasn't learned how furniture works. <laughs> Mr. Carlson is sitting on the couch. Both have game controls in their hands. We can hear the distinctive sounds of an electronic video game from the early 1980s. Johnny watches them for a bit, and then he speaks. Excuse me, AC. Hey, Did not know, Fever. It's really tough at the top, huh, boys? Johnny crosses between them and the TV screen. He sits in Mr. Carlson's chair. We're just taking a few minutes out to relax. Is that all right? Mr. Carlson tells Andy he's up to bat. It's Carlson's turn to pitch. Whatever it is they're playing in Art's office doesn't seem to be a real video console. We spent way too much time perusing pictures of gaming systems from the early 80s. We even threw a search request to the accountant of rock. Those hand controllers that Art and Andy are using have antennas on them. They should be easy to identify. We had no luck. The console part of it, what's sitting on the couch, looks like it might be related to the Mattel in television system. It's not exact, but it's pretty close. The way the controllers are wired to the console also looks a little like the Intellivision. The sounds aren't like anything we found used in a video baseball game of the era. We think they built the console as a prop, then dropped generic sound effects into the soundtrack. After Art had that handheld baseball game, and we know there was some change to the sound it made, I'm wondering if they decided just to create their own so they could avoid any kind of conflicts. Maybe. Johnny props his feet up on top of Carlson's desk, crossing them at the the ankles. Can I ask a question here? Art tells him to make it quick. Yeah, I thought that it'd be a good idea for the station to start a fund to rebuild a Vine Street mission. They had a little fire down there last night. Yeah, sure. Put me down for $10. Could I put you down for 20 You put me down for what I tell you. Yes, sir. Okay. They've got a game to play. Johnny gives Carlson and Andy an annoyed look. Carlson looks at Andy. See what you do with this bitch. <laughs> oh, yeah. Over the center. Johnny stands up and walks in front of the television screen. He sits on the desk, blocking their view of the game. Mr. Carlson looks at Johnny. Are you still here, Fever? Well, I just wanted to ask, what do you think you paid for this little game? About $160. The price is pretty accurate. Most early 80s consoles ran in the upper 100 to lower 200 range. Johnny makes a note of the amount on his message pad. I guess, Travis, uh, anything Mr. Carlson can do, you can probably yeah. top, huh? Bet your boot. Johnny scribbles some more <laughs> notes on his pad. Thank you very much, fans of Chicken Gumbo. Thank you. Very much. Johnny heads out of the office. 
Mr. Carlson tells him to close the door. We transition to the bullpen. Bailey's at her desk on the phone. Oh, no, that's fantastic. Canned food would be a big help. Yes, thank you very much. Herb walks in and hangs his coat on the rack. And would you take a look at Herb? I believe it's it's time. Herb Darlick, fashion alert. Herb is wearing a dark brown plaid jacket with light brown lines running through it and tan pocket flaps, elbow patches, and collar. The pocket flaps, elbow patches, and collar look to be made of suede material. The buttons on his jacket are also tan. He has on a cream-colored dress shirt with a light brown tie that has dark brown diagonal stripes. He has on tan pants, his white belt, and white shoes. Herb approaches Bailey's desk. Did you hear anything about a giant lizard on the East Coast? (laughs) Smiling, Bailey responds. Oh, yes, sir. He is alive and well, and he's coming this way. (laughs) (laughs) Herb goes over to his desk and has a seat. Kidding, aren't you? Maybe. Maybe not. But I would lock my car door on the way home tonight, Herbie. (laughs) Bailey walks over to Herb's desk. Herb is reading a magazine. She tells Herb that Johnny is trying to raise funds for the underprivileged at the Vine Street Mission. How much can I put you down for? Underprivileged? Yes. (laughs) As in poor? That's right. Passeroni. Herb turns his back on Bailey and continues to read his magazine. And hold on a minute. Did you catch what Herb (laughs) is reading? We did a freeze and a zoom because we had to know. Herb is checking out a copy of the November 1981 issue of Muscle and Bodybuilder magazine. It looks like someone may have stuck masking tape over parts of the masthead trying to obscure the title. This is a posing magazine. It's filled with glossy pictures of oiled-up bodybuilders, both male and female, but mainly male, flexing in competitions. If you'd like a copy of this very issue, there's one being sold on eBay right now for 12 bucks. We've never known Herb to be a big workout guy, and homophobe Herb doesn't seem like someone who'd be reading a magazine full of men wearing nothing but briefs. (laughs) Maybe the ad on the back cover is a clue as to why Herbie is reading this publication. The text-heavy black and white ad has a matching text-heavy headline, Make Any Girl Do Anything You Mentally Command With Your Mind Alone. This is an ad for a book with an incredibly dumb name, Successp. They changed the last S in success to a P, so you get S-U-C-C, then E-S-P, as in extrasensory perception. There are versions of this for both men and women. Success claims to give you the secret to controlling any member of the opposite sex through the power of your mind. Now, what if the female has read the female version, the male has read the male version, and, and they're, they're trying working to on each other? <laughs> I think there'd be an explosion of some Their heads sort. Heads would explode. Yeah, something would, bad would happen. <laughs> this valuable publication is being sold by a company called Matchmaker out of New York. How incredibly early '80s is this offer? They invite you to pay by check and post date the check by 31 days in case you don't like the book. 
people must have actually bought this. These matchmaker guys are making enough to afford a full-page ad in Muscle and Bodybuilder magazine. When was the last time you sent a check anywhere for anything? I can't even remember the last time I wrote a check. Wow. Venus enters the bullpen. Bailey asks her why he won't donate. Because I don't believe in the poor. (laughs) (laughs) Don't believe in them. Bailey looks at Venus, who rolls his eyes and sits at the DJ's desk. Herb goes on. I believe everyone should pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, like Venus did. (laughs) (laughs) Venus looks up from the files he's reading. In your ear, Herb. (laughs) Bailey begins her plea. These people don't even have boots, much less bootstraps. They need your help. It's called charity. Do you know what bootstraps are? We didn't, and we wanted to find out. Have you ever seen those little loops on the back top edge of a lot of boots? Those loops are bootstraps. They're there to help you pull on your boots. The old phrase Herb used, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, is playing on the physically impossible idea of lifting yourself by pulling on your own feet. Someone who pulls themselves up by their bootstraps is a self-starter. They can make their own way, starting with nothing. I don't believe in the poor. Venus supports Bailey. That's charity. Read a list. Herb looks at the two of them. I don't believe in charity, period, end of report. He doesn't believe in the homeless, (laughs) and he doesn't believe in charity. Venus asks Herb why. Herb stands to explain. Because people only give to charity to make themselves look good. I might have known. I mean, they, they want to impress people. Me, I'm just a, I'm a little bit different. I mean, I want people to like me for me. <laughs> Herb looks at Bailey and closes the little notebook in her hand as he says, So, um, don't talk to HRT Jr. about charity because I'm just a little too real for that. So condescending. Herb takes his right fist and gently gives Bailey a slow motion punch on the chin and then has a seat. Herb picks up his spring gripper hand exerciser. (laughs) He begins squeezing it as he gets back to reading his magazine. You don't give to charity? Never. Bailey asks him to swear he never gives to charity. I swear. Herb crosses his heart, licks his fingers, and swipes them on the palm of his other hand, then hits the same palm with his fist and raises that hand with his fingers crossed. I never give to charity. Bailey stands and repeats his hand movements as she asks. Do you swear that you never give to charity in front of the Internal Revenue Auditor? Herb puts his hands in his pockets and can't meet Bailey's eyes. Well. Bailey tells Herb he's the lowest form of life she has ever encountered. All right, all right, all right. Put me down for 20 bucks. I love that super complex swearing move that Herb does. I've never seen that before. That was good. Bailey writes his donation in her little notebook and says, thanks, Venus stands to leave. You played dirty, Bailey. (laughs) Bailey is right behind him calling his name. Now let's take a look at Venus's vibin' threads. Venus is wearing a powder blue shimmery nylon sweatsuit with a maroon tank top underneath. Bailey is still calling Venus's name, and now she's starting to chase him as he's leaving the bullpen. Johnny is out in the studio hallway on his way into the bullpen, also calling Venus's name. Venus. 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 Uh, Venus is trapped. Johnny tells Bailey not to pressure him. Venus shuts the door to the bullpen going on out into the hallway. He tells Johnny he'll give. We can hear Harden My Heart from Quarterflash playing over the air monitor as Johnny asks Venus, 
how much he can put him down for. Okay, I'll tell you what, double whatever it is you're giving. I was hoping it'd be a little more than that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's right, that is too cheap. Put me down for three times what it is you're giving. Pardon My Heart was the debut single from the debut album by Portland rock band Quarter Flash. Husband and wife Marv and Rindy Ross were the backbone of the band. Marv wrote all the songs. Rindy sang lead and also played sax. This would be the band's only top ten hit. Pardon My Heart will go to number three on the Billboard Hot 100 in October of 1981. A fun tidbit about Quarter Flash. The original band name was Seafood Mama. The name Quarter Flash is something they found in a book at producer John Boylan's house. It's Australian slang for new immigrants. The saying goes that one quarter flash, three quarters foolish. Venus starts to walk away, but Johnny stops him. He tells Venus this is kind of a personal thing with him. I understand these people. They're lightly warped, but they're trying. Lightly warped? Yeah, by light. But they deserve our support. Venus looks at Johnny, then pointing at the Grace Jones poster on the wall (laughs) to the left of the studio door, he says... Tell you what. I'll give you a week's salary if you get that poster out of here. Venus goes into the studio. Johnny looks at the poster. You know, I love you, Grace, and I I like your music, but charity comes first. Johnny rips the poster down and wads it into a ball. If you don't know Grace Jones, it's kind of hard to explain Grace Jones. Grace is a stunningly dark-skinned singer, model, actress, and songwriter who was born in Jamaica in 1948. Her family moved to Syracuse, New York, when Grace was 13. She began her modeling career at 18, moving to Paris at age 20. Jones had a bold, androgynous, dark-skinned look which appealed to international fashion houses. She appeared on covers of Elle, Vogue, and Stern. In the mid-70s, Grace began her music career. Her first three albums were heavily influenced by disco. The poster Johnny tore down was for her fifth studio album, Night Clubbing. It's considered her most commercially successful. The title track was the cover of a song co-written by Iggy Pop and David Bowie. The cover art, what also appears on the poster, is a painting. It was done by Jean-Paul Goud. The androgynous Jones is presented as a man in an Armani suit with a cigarette dangling from the corner of her mouth and a flat-top haircut. Nightclubbing would peak at number 32 on the Billboard 200 album chart. Weirdly, Johnny says he likes Grace's music. Prior to this album, Grace was a mainstay of the New York Studio 54 disco scene. It really doesn't seem like Johnny's thing. We've also got posters from Jean-Luc Ponty, Emmy Lou Harris, and Reactor here in the hallway, but we're going to save those. This episode is already pretty packed, and these posters do come back later in the season. Night 
Jennifer comes through the door at the end of the hallway and walks towards Johnny. Johnny turns to Jennifer kind of proudly. Guess which DJ has managed to raise almost $500 this morning? Jennifer asks if his initials are Johnny Fever, and Johnny tells her she's right. Jennifer and Johnny walk into the studio. Jennifer takes a seat on the stool. Johnny tells Venus Jennifer's helping to raise funds. How's it going? I'm finished. You quit? $40,000 was all you needed, wasn't it? (laughs) Venus's mouth has dropped open. He's staring at Jennifer. You've already raised $40,000? Jennifer goes on to explain how it's as well as done. I'm having several of my friends over to my apartment this evening. I tell them about your charity. They take out their checkbooks. It's just a matter of a few hors d'oeuvres and a little chit-chat. Johnny tells her it's not even 10 o'clock. Well, I could have been faster, but with Onassis and Rockefeller gone, you have to scramble a little bit more. (laughs) When Jennifer says Onassis and Rockefeller, she's most likely referencing Greek yacht magnate Aristotle Onassis, who died in 1975, and 41st vice president and former governor of New York, Nelson Rockefeller who died in January of 1979. Rockefeller especially was a noted philanthropist. Venus smiles at Jennifer. Jennifer, what would you say if Ronald Reagan called and asked you to be Secretary of the Treasury? I said no. (laughs) (laughs) Jennifer giggles a little and says charity is much more fun. You only have to work when you want to. Johnny is queuing up a record, doing the no-headphone WKRP visual cue. He tells Jennifer she really ought to come down to the mission and get to know some of these folks. Jennifer looks like a deer caught in the headlights. I'd love to, sometime. Yeah, there's this one guy, Charlie. He can pull his lower lip up over his nose. <laughs> now that's entertainment. <laughs> Well, after Jennifer turned down the Secretary of the Treasury job, Donald Regan eventually accepted it. Regan was the Treasury Secretary under Reagan from 1981 until 85. Regan was a staunch advocate of Reaganomics. In a nutshell, Reaganomics advocate cutting taxes as a way to create jobs and stimulate production. Donald Regan died in 2003 at the age of 84. Jennifer tells the two of them to come to her apartment tonight, along with the whole gang. It starts around 7, and she says there will be plenty of food and drink. You want us there? Of course. With all your wealthy friends? Johnny, what is the point of having a party like this if the people who are going to contribute don't meet the people involved? Just be there. Keep in mind, she asked for them to drop by. Jennifer leaves the bullpen. Johnny tells Venus, oh, it's too bad he has to work. Yeah, that's right. That's a shame. That's a party that cries out for a minority member. (laughs) We fade to black and head into a commercial break. You've already raised $40,000? We come back from commercial now in Jennifer's apartment. We start on Les, who's walking back into the room from the window. As Les walks behind the couch, the camera pans across Herb. He's sitting on the couch, tossing nuts in the air, than trying to catch them in his mouth. And yeah, we we did check out Herb's suit here. This is green one with the chalk lines on right. it. And it I really refer kinda, to it as his watermelon suit. It kind of fits in the room. We're not going to fashion alert him on this one. Les walks to the kitchen serving window and looks in. Bailey and Jennifer are preparing the appetizers. Jennifer asks Bailey to watch the time. The stuffed mushrooms come out in eight minutes. Holding up a tray of appetizers, Bailey asked Jennifer a question. Do we 
serve these before or after we hit them for the money? It goes like this. Cheese puffs, cocktails, money, stuffed mushrooms. Ah. <laughs> then, double cognac, money, triple cognac, money, money, money. Beautiful. <laughs> Jennifer is experienced when it comes to hosting this type of party. Bailey and Jennifer are laughing as they carry some food out to the guests. Just think of this as a very expensive Tupperware party, right? <laughs> Want to know more about Earl Tupper and his fabulous invention? Check the In Concert episode of the podcast. We do a full history on Tupperware. Money, money, money. As they walk out of the kitchen, Les stops Jennifer. He complains he feels useless. He wants something to do. Les, the most important job at a party is to make sure that everyone's glasses are always full. Can I count on you? Les tells her, of course. We come up on Mr. Carlson and Andy talking to a very rich-looking couple. Wait, wait a minute. Uh, you are the, the Mittenhoffs? Uh, as of uh, the Mittenhoff Library? Yes, that's right. <laughs> and the Mittenhoff wing of the Memorial Hospital. That's correct. Well, say, you people are all right. I had my hernia repaired in your wing. <laughs> Mrs. Mittenhoff had an appetizer up to her mouth, just about ready to take a bite when Mr. Carlson said this. She makes a face and puts the food back on the tray. We have seven guest stars in this episode, so we're going to keep the bios kind of brief. Mr. Mittenhoff is being played by John Vivian. John was born in 1915. He served the U.S. during World War II and went to drama school on the G.I. Bill of Rights. John has 50 total acting credits on his IMDb profile. This appearance on WKRP is his 49th. John's first acting gig was in 1949. His last would be a year later in 1983 on an episode of Simon & Simon. John died in December of 1983 at his home in Santa Monica. He was 68 years old. Mrs. Mittenhoff is being played by Helene High. Helene is an Arkansas native who started acting in the movies in 1946. She has a total of 37 entries on her IMDb profile. Prior to this appearance, Helene had been in the 1980 Dolly Parton movie, 9 to 5. She has two more appearances after this one, in the Voyagers TV series, then in the 1984 movie, Mass Appeal. Helene died in Los Angeles in 1991 at the age of 87. And just so we're catching all the details, we did check. We couldn't find a Mittenhoff family known for philanthropy in Cincinnati. The Mittenhoff surname appears to be more popular in European countries than in the U.S. Mr. Carlson goes on saying the hospital is clean, modern. I just love that. Oh, well, thank you very much. <laughs> Jennifer asked Mr. Carlson to please try one of her cheese puffs. They're a northern Italian recipe I got in Venice. Jennifer walks around the room with the tray of cheese puffs. Herb pops up from the couch to grab a cheese puff from the tray. One of the guests also takes a cheese puff. Venice is so lovely. But the water smells, I felt. Talking with his mouth full, Herb adds his thoughts. Water stinks here, too. Check it out sometime. <laughs> Not the guy you want at this party. <laughs> so Patsy Randall is being played by Lynn Wood. Lynn was born in 1932. She has 33 credits on her IMDb profile, including a few soaps with multiple episodes. Her only role as a series regular was on the 1973 Western-themed sitcom Dusty's Trail. The single-season sitcom was a vehicle for Bob Denver, who was trying to shake his Gilligan persona. 
Lynn's last role was as Aunt Janet on 22 episodes of General Hospital starting in 1987. As far as we can tell, Lynn is still living and just turned 90 in May. We were curious, does the water in Venice stink? After reviewing several sources, we're still not sure. According to a Guardian article from 2002, British engineers were being called in to address the flooding problem in the floating city of Venice. The title of the article was Flooded, Stinking, and Sinking. Venice calls in British experts to rescue city. Maybe whatever they did worked because a Traveler's Press article from 2022 says Venice canals do not smell. TP says the most you might smell is salt water, but other than that, Venice is odor-free. This issue may require some on-site research from the WKRP cast investigative team. Yes, I think so. Yeah, we're going to have to get over to Venice. As for stinking water in Cincinnati, we already investigated that. We can attest to the river being a bit funky down by the banks, but no more so than any other river cities like St. Louis or Memphis. The woman tries to ignore Herb. Jennifer, I'm so glad you moved back to this apartment. They rezoned my neighborhood to commercial. She made a bundle on it. Jennifer gives Herb a stern look. Herb, Hmm. take this cheese puff and eat it. (laughs) Herb gets the hint. He puts a finger to his lips in the shush sign, and he sits back down on the couch. Jennifer walks by the Mittenhoffs, passing the conversation off to them. Mr. and Mrs. Mittenhoff just returned from Washington. How are things in our capital? Oh, the Gipper's doing one hell of a job. (laughs) He's cutting everything to the bone. We're going to have a balanced budget if it kills us all. Why was Ronald Reagan known as the Gipper? Well, because he played famous All-American Green Bay halfback George the Gipper Gip in the 1940 movie Newt Rockne, All-American. The real Gipper was only 25 years old when he died of complications from pneumonia during his senior year. For more info on The Gipper, check our episode about Jennifer and the will. Herb reaches over and pulls on Mr. Mittenhoff's pant leg to get his attention. Hey, Mittenhoff. (laughs) My wife and I went to Washington about uh, three years ago. The Lincoln Memorial is pretty good. There's a great big guy sitting in a chair. (laughs) Herb is sitting on the couch with a pillow under each arm as he says this. He winks at Mr. Mittenhoff. I missed it the first time I saw it, but then later I noticed Herb has those pillows under each arm, kind of like... Lincoln. Right, because they, they they're kind of square. Yeah, they look they're like squared the armrests. off in the front, and he's kind of posing like the big guy in the chair. And the big guy Herb mentioned sitting in that chair in the Lincoln Memorial, it would be Abe Lincoln. It is his memorial. <laughs> the memorial to our 16th president sits opposite the Washington Monument at the western end of the reflecting pool on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. It was designed by architect Henry Bacon. It was his final project. The big guy statue in the chair was designed by Daniel Chester French. The memorial was dedicated in May of 1922. The Lincoln Memorial is ranked the seventh most popular piece of American architecture by the American Institute of Architects. Jennifer suggests that they all sit down and get comfortable. Everyone finds a seat. Jennifer begins explaining about the Vine Street mission and all the damage it has from a fire. She tells them all the funds have run out and they have no money to rebuild. Mr. Mittenhoff stands. Jennifer, 
I think the time has come when the private sector should take care of their own. How much do we need? He smiles and bows to Jennifer. Jennifer begins to tell the Mittenhoffs about Dr. Johnny Fever. Perhaps they've heard of him? No, no, no sorry. Really. <laughs> Dr. Johnny Fever? He's really quite popular. No, no I don't think so. No. <laughs> <laughs> if this group listens to the radio, it's probably NPR. Jennifer continues. She tells them Dr. Fever is a friend of the mission. He says the damages amount to about $40,000. Now the ball has already started rolling. Why, Mr. Carlson and Mr. Travis have already made very substantial donations. (laughs) Andy and Mr. Carlson look at each other. This is news to them. They're a bit confused. Everyone raises their glasses to them just so no one checks on the amount of those substantial donations. One of the guests speaks up. It's Judge Sid Randall. I wonder if we aren't thinking too small here. Putting $40,000 into an old building, why don't we put up a brand new building? Jennifer tells the judge that is exciting. Judge Sid Randall is being played by Richard Durr. The very tall Richard Durr, he's 6'2", started acting in 1941 in the movies. He made the jump to TV early. He had roles on the Ford Theater Hour and the Silver Theater, both in 1950. Durr has 80 credits on his IMDb profile with several multiple episode listings. Richard has a certain look of authority about him. Scanning his roles, it's not surprising he lands a lot of jobs as politicians, doctors, or military brass. He retired from acting in 1983 and made the move to real estate. Richard died of pancreatic cancer in 1992. A quick note about this character name, Sid Randall. We're betting this is a shout-out to Tony Randall. His character in the 1976 sitcom, The Tony Randall Show, was a judge. Also at the time of this airing, Tony was starring in the 1981 sitcom, Love, Sidney. Sid Randall seems a little too perfect to be a coincidence. Jennifer asked the judge what he has in mind. Turns out he has some unused land in the Price Hill area. We visited the Price Hill neighborhood during our recent trip to Cincinnati. It's very nice, but not a place you'd expect to find a soup kitchen. These guys aren't seeing the problems. Mr. Mittenhoff tells the judge it's an excellent idea. But what's a plot of land without a building? Now, I will contribute $50,000 to the construction of that new building. Holy moly. (laughs) Herb can't contain himself. We're surprised he isn't hyperventilating. 50K is what Ferriman would have spent in three months. Jennifer pokes Herb in the back. Herb's head is going back and forth and back as he's watching the two. He's about to twist his head off his shoulders. Oh, it was so funny. Mrs. Mittenhoff jumps up from the couch to go hug her husband. I love it when you do things like that. You just come right out with it. Well, the judge will not be outdone, however. And I'm pretty sure I can lay my hands on 50,000 more. Oh, Sid, I just knew you would. His wife is gazing at him lovingly. These guys are murder. Jennifer tells Herb Andy wants to see him in the kitchen. Uh, yeah, Herb, why don't we make the Mittenhoffs a couple of zombies? Okay, fine. Herb turns to the Mittenhoffs. You're going to love these. They'll knock you on your butt. Come on. <laughs> 
Mr. Carlson goes into the kitchen with them. Sure, we've all heard of the drink called the zombie, but do you really know what one is? It seems like the history of any drink is always a little muddled, possibly because the people writing the history were drunk when it happened. They'll knock you on your butt. In the case of the zombie, legend says it was invented by Don Beach in 1934. Beach owned the very popular Don the Beachcomber restaurant in Hollywood. Beach supposedly concocted the drink to help a hungover patron get through a business meeting. The customer returned saying the drink had turned him into a zombie for his entire trip. The name was quickly adopted. The zombie is what's called a tiki cocktail. It was introduced at the height of the tiki craze, which Beach himself helped start. Fruity rum drinks served in coconuts with little umbrellas were emblematic of the era. Beach's zombie is incredibly potent. The original zombie recipe contained three different kinds of rum, Knock you on your butt. lime juice, grenadine, bitters, and six drops of pernod. Beach's zombie also contains something called Don's Mix. Pre-mixing certain ingredients before setting them out on the bar was a method Beach used to protect his recipes. Don's Mix was a blend of grapefruit juice and cinnamon syrup. The zombie was so sweet and fruity it masked the high alcohol content. They go down easy, but zombies have such a high proof they can actually be lit before serving. Patrons at the Beachcomber were limited to two zombies, no exception. (laughs) Although Beach guarded his drink recipes jealously, other West Coast bars began adding a version of the zombie to their cocktail lineup. Many didn't taste anything like the original. They were just cashing in on the popularity of the name. In 1939, a copycat version of the zombie was served at the New York World's Fair. This caused its popularity to explode on the East Coast. By 1947, Trader Vic included a zombie recipe in his bartender's guide. For a complete history of the zombie and several great zombie recipes, check out Jeff Beachbumberry's book, Sippin' Safari. Jennifer tells them all she's certainly invited the right people tonight. Thank you so very much. And I know what the people from the mission would say if they were here. You, the people from the mission. The doorbell rings. (laughs) Even after she moved away, the Fly Me to the Moon doorbell is back. We were first introduced to Jennifer's unique doorbell in Season 1, Episode 19, I Do, I Do, for now. What the hell is that? For background on Fly Me to the Moon, check that podcast episode. We also learned in our interview with Max Tash, it's Max who is actually playing Jennifer's doorbell. Make sure to find our full interview with Max in the podcast feed. Jennifer goes to the door saying it must be Dr. Fever. She opens the door wide to reveal Johnny. He's not alone. Gang's all here. Jennifer's face drops as she sees who Johnny has brought with him. Hello. Johnny begins introducing everyone. Uh, This is Sheila Morgan. She's Vine Street's corresponding secretary and historian. A woman wearing an old wool coat and gold knit scarf shuffles in. And this is this year's president, Charlie Jones. A man in a plaid shirt. 
old coat and a scruffy beard walks in. He takes off his hat, revealing a shiny bald head. And of course, Percy Romanoff, our acting vice president, treasurer, and what else is it? Sergeant at Arms. Percy has a couple of days growth of beard on his face. It also looks like he's forgotten to put in at least some of his teeth for this affair. It's one of Hugh Wilson's favorite things, weird, sassy old people. I'm not as old as I look. Percy Romanoff is being played by Carmen Philpy. You've probably seen Carmen in something. He has more than 100 acting credits spanning 40 years. Carmen was a character actor known for playing homeless drifters, winos, and (laughs) bums. And he was really good at it. Originally from Pittsfield, Massachusetts, he made the move to Hollywood in the late 1960s. Carmen was a favorite casting choice for both Tim Burton and Adam Sandler. Carmen, like Large Marge, also appeared in Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Carmen passed away in May of 2003 at his home in Washington, D.C. He was 80 years old. Carmen worked right up until his death. His last two projects were released posthumously. Sheila Morgan is being played by Gloria Leroy. Gloria is a character. When she says she used to do some exotic dancing, she did. (laughs) Gloria was busty and she capitalized on it. She spent the bulk of her career in burlesque. She was the burlesque headliner at the Las Vegas Hotel El Rancho in 1951 and 52. She has more than 104 performer credits on her IMDb profile, representing dozens of episodes of TV. She played the recurring character Mildred Boom Boom Turner on All in the Family. She was a series regular on both Hot L Baltimore and Kaz in the 1970s. Gloria passed away in 2018 at the age of 92. Her last project was an appearance in the 2015 TV series, Getting On, when she was 90 years old. Charlie Jones is being played by Perry Cook. Perry was born in Florida in 1931. He's always looked older than he is. His first TV role was on a Perry Mason episode in 1959. Although he was only 28, he played the character Old Man. Here in this episode, he's only 51. Charlie made nine different appearances on the series Have Gun, Will Travel between 1958 and 62. During that time, he played nine different roles. He also showed up regularly on Death Valley Days and Gunsmoke. He was a series regular on Hunter, making 29 appearances from 1985 through 90. Perry's last credit is the Disney movie The Rocketeer from 1991. There's no death date listed for Perry on IMDb, so we're hoping he just celebrated his 91st birthday in May of 2022. Johnny smiles at Jennifer, apologizing for being late. I uh, had a hard time convincing him you really wanted him to come. Jennifer puts her hand to her chest. What a wonderful surprise. See, I told you. (laughs) Johnny is smiling at the group that he brought with him. Johnny tells Jennifer he thought it would help things along if he brought them. Well, it'll make things interesting. (laughs) Jennifer introduces the Mittenhoffs and the Randalls. There's a flurry of greetings all around. Bailey is shaking hands with Sheila when she excuses herself to go help make the zombies. Bailey heads into the kitchen. Les follows closely. Jennifer invites them into the living room with the others. Johnny asks Charlie to tell everybody about the kitchen. Well, sir, the damn thing just 
blew up. I mean, I was there. It scared me so bad. I just about... Uh, Percy? Uh, why, why don't... Uh, you were there, too. Uh-huh. It was a big... It was a big... Uh, it was uh, like... It was like... Uh, it reminded me of... Uh, it was just something. <laughs> I love Percy. <laughs> Johnny suggests they tell the folks what the mission means to them. Sheila, you tell. Well, see, we don't like the name Mission. That's why, among us anyway, we call it the David Niven Golf and Steam Club. Patsy Randall and Mrs. Mittenhoff laugh and they pat each other on the arm saying, oh, isn't that cute? Sheila tells them that they have written several letters to Mr. Niven, but we don't know where to send them. David Niven is known as being a quite classy British actor. David has 110 acting credits, mostly movies, spanning 50 years. Niven was born in 1910 in London. His birthday is March 1st, the Catholic feast day of St. David. Niven was afflicted with ALS. At the time this episode aired, he was quite ill. By September of 1982, he will be too ill to attend Grace Kelly's funeral. He passed away in the summer of 1983 in Switzerland. Patsy Randall tells everyone they saw David Niven in Florence. Florence, South Carolina. <laughs> I got arrested there once for stealing... Uh... <laughs> Was that thing? I remember I wanted it. I like how some things cause something to break loose in Percy's gray yeah. matter. Just certain <laughs> words. Florence, South Carolina is the county seat of Florence County. It's a town of 38,500 as of the 2020 census. Florence is an eight and a half hour drive from Cincinnati, but it is a straight shot right down I-75. Jennifer looks like she is about to break out in tears. Everything has suddenly taken a turn for the worse. You know, it is so nice to have all these wonderful and diverse people together. <laughs> we have the lovely people who are making contributions to the building fund and the people who will be enjoying the building when it's funded. Oh, goodness, we should do this more often. Charlie pipes up. <laughs> what, what, what building? We're thinking of giving you people a new building. We don't need a building. We need a kitchen. Mrs. Mittenhoff tells them this building would be in Price Hill. Johnny is flabbergasted. Price Hill? That's a suburb. This triggers another memory for Percy. Price Hill. Price? Oh, yeah. I stole a... Uh, what the hell did I steal up there? Percy is hilariously confused about his exploits. You steal things? Well, uh... Which brings us to... The line of the episode. I think I do. <laughs> I, uh, but I don't seem to remember, and, uh... And I don't have any of this stuff at home. <laughs> <laughs> You'd think he'd have some of it. Johnny pats Percy on his back. The Randalls stand saying they should be on their way. The Mittenhoffs stand too. 
Jennifer tells him she's sorry they're leaving so soon. You will be helping us, won't you? Mr. Mittenhoff assures her they said they would and they will. Sheila just wants to be clear. But we don't need the building. We need the kitchen. The judge tells them they'll talk about it. And it can't be up in Price Hill because there ain't no bums up there. Mrs. Mittenhoff has had enough. I think this is rather presumptuous. It is our money. And you keep telling us that you don't like this and that you don't like that. Yeah, but- yeah, but but you can't go moving the mission around that much because because there's drunks out there trying to find it. <laughs> and it's got to be exactly where they think it is. I mean, you can't move it a foot. The judge heads to the door. He tells Jennifer they've enjoyed it. Jennifer thanks them again for coming. They're all saying goodnight and heading quickly for the door. But don't move the building, not even a foot. foot. (laughs) Johnny stops them. He seems upset. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I just don't get it here. Now, now you're the people who said you were going to give the money, right? I mean, the deal is down. And now you you see the bums who are going to get it, so you want to get out of it. Is that what's happening here? Please, Johnny, I'd rather not have a scene. Well, I just want to know what kind of people they are, anyway. They're my friends. Johnny motions behind him to Charlie, Sheila, and Percy. Well, they're my friends, and this is just checkbook charity. There is an audible gasp from the group. Yeah, it's, uh, here's my money, give me my tax break, but let me out of here. Jennifer turns to face Johnny. Well, at least they're willing to give it, and they don't have to. What about your friends? I haven't even heard a thank you yet. Well, hell, we got all dressed up to come up here. (laughs) Got all dressed up. Mettenhoff cuts in to try and calm things down. Please, Jennifer, it's all right, really. No, it's not. I I get it, Jennifer. The poor are supposed to say, thank you, rich people. Where would we be without you? Is that it? Sheila taps Johnny on the shoulder. It's okay, Johnny, really. No, it's not okay, Sheila. I hate free. So do I. But this is so condescending. And so ungrateful. What, you think my friends are just a bunch of bums, is that it? When, when's the last time you had a drink, Charlie? Five years ago. Percy? Four and a half. Sheila? About an hour ago. <laughs> now it's Team Jennifer's turn. All right. Judge, did you or did you not give all of that money to the daycare center? That was an anonymous donation. Patsy? He did. I'm sorry, but I'm very proud of you. And the Mittenoffs donated a library. They didn't have to do that. Percy steps out from behind Sheila. Is that you? The Mittenoff Library? Yes. Mr. Mittenhoff walks over and sits on the arm of the couch. Did you ever check a book out from there? No, sir. I already have a book. (laughs) (laughs) Already has a book. He's got, he probably stole it. (laughs) Sheila walks over to Mr. Mittenhoff. Excuse me, but... uh... I was an exotic dancer at one time, so I know a little bit about how life works. I think you rich people give money mainly because it makes you feel good, right? It's a kick. Yeah, we know it. See, that's why we don't jump right in and say, oh, thank you, thank you. But on the other hand, we'll take the money because we need it. So see, in a way, everybody's getting what they need. But don't expect us recipients to go all the way down to the buff, if you know what I mean. Mr. Mittenhoff leans forward. He's got a little grin on his face. Were you really an exotic dancer? (laughs) Yeah. 
I have this fantasy. Oh, and yes, she was, for real. Johnny makes a suggestion. Maybe you should all get together and talk about everything. (laughs) They all come back into Jennifer's living room and sit down. There's chatter and laughter. Johnny and Jennifer watch the scene. Johnny looks at Jennifer. Listen, Jennifer, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry I got mad. Johnny puts his arm around Jennifer's waist. I'm sorry I got mad, too. Jennifer wraps her arms around Johnny. Does that mean you might be willing to commit a charitable act? No, and I don't give at the office, either. <laughs> <laughs> Jennifer gives Johnny a kiss on the lips. You know, Johnny is hitting on Jennifer not as often or as rudely as her, but he does hit on Jennifer pretty oh, yeah. regularly. Yeah. It's just always kind of in that fun, joking way. There's a cut to the kitchen serving window. We see Bailey wearing an oven mitt in the shape of a fish, and it's pretty darn funny. We saw it <laughs> earlier. There's smoke all around her, and she's coughing and waving her fish-mitted hand in front of her face. It's chaos. We can see Carlson waving a towel behind her. Les is covering his nose with his handkerchief, and he's tossing champagne from the bottle on the fire. Andy's pushing Herb away from the oven. Jennifer, I'm sorry, but I forgot the stuffed mushrooms, and they kind of got, got on fire, and Herb kind of poured his zombie on it. Long story short, I just think this is a very bad week for kitchens in Cincinnati. (laughs) And you don't want to be pouring a zombie on a fire. That's not a good idea. (laughs) Bailey pulls the doors closed on the window and the screen fades to black. That's all for Jennifer and Johnny's charity. Okay, fellow babies, next week is our wedding anniversary. 35 great years, right, baby? Yeah, that's right, baby. Yeah. (laughs) Sound really enthusiastic. (laughs) We're taking the week off to celebrate next week, so be watching for a favorite rerun. Then the next week on June 28th, What's our episode, Donna? We will be discussing pills. The station sells some new commercial spots to a diet company whose magic pills are not as innocuous as they seem. And we'll be doing that whole episode at 1.5 times speed. Uh That's going to do it for this episode of the WKRP cast. If you'd like to watch along with us, make sure to check our show notes. Find us on social media. You can follow our Facebook page at WKRPCast. And for more WKRP fun, become a patron. Go to patreon.com slash WKRPCast for behind-the-scenes fun, full interviews, and more. Got a question, comment, or correction? Let us know about it. Write us, WKRPCast at gmail.com. And remember, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Bye now. May the good news be yours. The WKRPCast is not endorsed by MTM Enterprises, Shout Factory, or CBS. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. WKRP in Cincinnati, the WKRP logo, and all names, pictures, and audio of WKRP in Cincinnati characters are registered trademarks of MTM, CBS, Shout Factory, or their respective copyright holders. Almost forgot, fellow babies. Booger!